This week on Writers Inc. I have to want to know what's happening next. It's like, um, if if you can open your page, the first sentence was something that uh, is impossible for me not to go. What's in the next sentence? And what's in the next sentence? Uh, that first page is super important. Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's In. Good afternoon, sir. How are you? Oh, man. How is it another week already? I feel I like we just sat down and did this. <laughs> we were just doing this a week ago. I don't know. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm knee deep in a new book and, and I learned something about myself. I, when I write first person, I have to do it in italics. I, really? I, I, I don't know why. Like when, when I wrote Fourth Monkey, um, you know, I, I did all the diary entries and I, and I wrote them in italics and we just, the publisher left it that way. Um, a lot of times when I work on these kind of books, if I have different sections, like I'll do things like that to just differentiate it. And then I leave it up to the editor that buys it. You know, I, I, I just kind of do it to create a, a watermark for them. Sort of like putting the character's name at the beginning of chapters. Like I do all that stuff with timestamps and then I just let them take out whatever they don't want to put. Um, so I've always written first person in italics, but I, I on this latest book, it, I'm writing it all 100% in first person and I tried doing it without doing it in italics and the voice just wasn't there like I got like two or three chapters in um actually it was further than that it was about 6,000 words and I went back and started reading it and like it, it just didn't feel like somebody telling me the story it, it felt like it's kind of hard to explain but it, it felt it had the same kind of feel as a 30,000 foot you know like a third person kind of view rather than being inside the main character's head so I spent the whole week I went back and just rewrote those first five or 6,000 words in in first person and did it in italics and, and now there's a voice there so <laughs> I, I can't explain it. I, I, it's just the way my brain is wired, I guess. But I guess moving forward, when I do first person, it's going to be in italics. So if I'm understanding you correctly, you have to see it come up on the screen italicized. Yeah. it's okay. um, When I was a kid, and I'm guessing this was probably like second or third grade, they, they gave us a test in elementary school to figure out how best we, we learn and absorb information. Um, and, you know, there's different ways to obviously do that. And some people learn better by rewriting something. Other people have to hear it. Other people have to see it. Um, for me, I had to physically write it down. So if, if somebody put something in front of me, like the Gettysburg Address, you know, I could listen to it 500 times and I, I wouldn't get it. But if I wrote it down, I could memorize it. Um, so I know my brain kind of gravitates towards that, but and I've, I've, when it comes to writing books, I've tried dictating, you know, using Dragon Naturally Speaking, and it just doesn't work for me. I have to physically see the words pop up on the page. I need to know where those, you know, the character breaks are, you know, the paragraph breaks. I need to see that white space or, or lack of it. Um, all those kind of things that need to be visual for me, um, particularly when it comes to pacing, you know, like that, that's really important. Um, but for me to be able to follow the story, I, I have to see it like I've, and it, and it sucks in a lot of ways because I know I could be a lot faster if I could dictate, but I just, I can't get that to work either. Yeah. Yeah. I'm hot and cold with that. I find the dictating is a whole lot easier when I'm writing nonfiction, but for writing fiction, it's really a challenge for me too. Yeah, and I definitely get that because when I'm out on my run every day, you know, occasionally I'll record like a quick note. I can do it on my watch. I've got a program on there where I just hit a red button and it'll record it and it sends it to my computer as text. Um, and if it's, you know, for the nonfiction book I'm working on, I can I can rattle off paragraphs, but um, just not in characters' voices. It just doesn't work that way for me, yeah. which is probably for the best because if people catch me on my run and I'm, you know, talking to like <laughs> female voices and little kids and you know, <laughs> the, the, the looks that I get now are weird enough, I think it's probably going right. to get even stranger. <laughs> so I, I had an interesting conversation this week with my Facebook ad rep. Um, do you have one of these guys? Like, I do, do you, not. Well, I okay. did at one point, and then I stopped running ads for a while, and so I, I've kind of lost touch. But I'm really curious to hear about this conversation. Yeah, so I'm honestly not sure, you know, w at what point you get one of these guys. I mean, I, I spent about anywhere from fifty dollars to $100,000 um, over the course of a year. Like, that's kind of my average over the last four or five years. Um, and at some point, I just started getting emails from Facebook saying, hey, would you like to schedule a phone call? And then they, they assigned a dedicated 
dedicated person to me. Um, and that dedicated person has changed pretty much every time we have one of those phone yes, calls. I don't, that I don't think I'm happy to. Yeah, I've never had anybody for more than like maybe a couple of months. Um, but for this one, I wanted to ask him about, you know, there's this problem that, you know, I know all authors are experiencing this where if our Facebook ads link back to our Amazon page, Facebook is rejecting the ads. And I had ads that were running for, you know, some of them were two years long, you know, from Fourth Monkey going all the way back to like 2015, 2016. I mean, these were some old ads um, that just linked to my Kindle page uh, and they just started to get rejected. And the only thing that I had done on my side was change the um, the budget because I go in and adjust that every week based on where my, my click-through number is. Um, so I asked, because I, I had heard, you know, a couple stories. I had heard that, um, you know, because Amazon is owned by a third party, they don't allow you to do that. You've got to, you know, link to your own website. There's all these stories floating around about why it's happening so I asked him about it and and he said he wasn't aware of it <laughs> like he, he's never never heard of this problem before <laughs> really so, yeah so my next question was well how long have you been doing this for, for Facebook <laughs> and, and he told me he's been with Facebook in this particular division for three years so I just I can't imagine that that this hasn't crossed his radar because I know I'm not the only author that he speaks to um, so I'm guessing that internally there's some kind of policy that, you know, to just not talk about it, which is weird. Um, but he, he created some ads with me on the fly. We put in the Amazon link and, and they haven't rejected yet, which is kind of frustrating because I wanted it to reject like right away. Um, yeah. But, you know, they're, they're going on a couple of days now where they're running strong and they haven't rejected. So I don't know if that means somebody flipped a switch. I don't know if there was a glitch going on, you know, for the last couple of months, you know, causing all this and they, they finally fixed it. Um, I, I have no idea. I mean, I, I had heard a rumor that somebody had, you know, like an individual went out there and somehow like claim, claimed Amazon as their own page, like their own property, um, like did that electronically somehow. And that caused anybody that was referring to it that wasn't that particular person to get rejected. Oh, wow. Um, like I, I heard, yeah, but like that's total rumor. Like I've got yeah. no idea if there's any you know fact behind it, but I could see a computer glitch, you know, like that creating this problem. Um, but yeah, like I asked him and, and, and I did it, you know, sort of in the way that they do on like your SAT questions. Like I asked him that same question in like two or three different times <laughs> during the conversation, just reworded it a little bit and tried to trip him up, but nope. It didn't wow. get him to admit to a, a damn thing. I, um, I could almost see the conversation. Like you were, you had the, the hood up and the mechanic standing <laughs> there and like, I'm telling you, I heard it as soon as I was driving up here. I heard it clicking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly like that. You know, and I'm a fairly smart guy. Like I, I, and, you know, and I'm an understanding guy. Like if it was some kind of glitch, if somebody just said, oh yeah, we found this, um, but we fixed it now. That's cool. I'm totally okay with that. There's a lot of moving parts happening there, but please admit to the problem. You know, there, there's yeah. no, there's no way they don't know about it. Right. You know, it's, especially with the kind of spending that I'm doing. And, and, you know, Dawson complained about it too. I think his account got shut down and, and James Blatch and those guys, you know, like we're all spending decent money. Like it, I, I can't imagine Facebook wants that to get, you know, to get switched off either. So like it's in everybody's best interest to make it work. So let's figure out what the problem is and get beyond it. You know, not pretend it doesn't exist. Yeah. It sounds like just a technical glitch. Like just get on that Facebook. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, right? absolutely. The other thing he wanted me to do, and I'm real hesitant to do this is he wanted me to upload my, my mailing list. Um, because uh, you know they can they can source these people out on Facebook, you know find kind of you know common commonalities between you know all of them and try and target my ads towards people like that group. Um, Lookalike audiences, what you're yeah, lookalike right? audiences. Mm -hmm. But I, I'm you know I'm not willing to share you know that mailing list, and I don't I don't think it would be fair to the people that are on that list if I were to do it. Um, I, I can see where it could be a benefit if they can do what they're saying they could do, but it just it, it just seems like I'd be feeding a machine that I really have no business feeding. That's a real gray area, man. I, I haven't heard many, if anyone, talk about that. But those look like audiences. They have to get that data from somewhere, and you have to give it. And and I wonder if that violates any any uh, email services TOS. I, I wouldn't be surprised if somebody that worked for Facebook was standing out in the hallway right now listening to us. Like, they <laughs> seem to know absolutely everything that I do. Um, you know, I, I can look at like I, I'd start you know Christmas shopping and just you know one Google search for one particular product, and all of a sudden every single feed and ad that I see all over my computer is is related to that product. Like it, there's so much Big Brother stuff going on, um, you know, and I, I I try to tell myself you know it, it doesn't matter. Um, because, you know, in a lot of ways it's benefiting me. I mean, I'd rather see ads for the things I'm looking for than things that have absolutely, absolutely nothing to do with me. Um, but at the same time, you know, if an evil empire gets a hold of that same data, like what could they do with it? You know, it's all, yeah. all, the, all the players, all the pieces are in, in place. I mean, I, it's, it's some scary stuff. Yeah. I mean, I could see a situation where you're, you know, talking to your wife, uh, with a, with an Amazon device in a room and you're like, I get a little upset stomach and you come back to your computer and there's ads for Rolaids that show up. 
that that's what it feels like. We've <laughs> we've actually got so many of those echoes in our house now that they've actually talked to each other. I don't know if you've you've got a couple of them, but because I, no, I buy like two I, or I'm three. I'm afraid, man. I haven't gotten one yet. Well, the, the convenience is is awesome. You know, like we can listen to any song that we want to anywhere that we want to. But at this point, I've got one basically in every room, and it, sometimes they trigger each other. And, and I don't know what the start of it is, but like I'll walk downstairs and I'll hear like literally two of them having a conversation <laughs> in two different rooms across from each other, and it sounds like they're reading Wikipedia entries back and forth. But it's it's the craziest, weirdest thing. And, and they're, yeah, they're saying, "Stop! He's coming! He's coming! Stop! Stop!" Yeah, <laughs> it makes me think of Joanna Penn and her last, you know, her last podcast about all the, the technology stuff that's coming down the road. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, these are our, our our electronic overlords, basically teaching themselves <laughs> teaching themselves how to, how to take take over the world. I welcome them with open arms. I, I think you have to. <laughs> it's either that, or they're going to put you in the mines. <laughs> so, what's going on in your neck of the woods? Well, I uh, caught a, I was on a podcast or something and I went and checked it out. There was an interesting article uh, on the Wall Street Journal about Barnes and Noble. And uh, the, the title of the article, this was on December 5th, I believe. It's Barnes and Noble's new boss tries to save the chain and traditional book selling. And it's a, uh, an article about James Daunt and what he wants to do with, with Barnes and Noble. And the gist of it is, is what he wants to do is he wants to return purchasing power and editorial decisions back to local managers. He wants the managers of, of your, your, the Barnes and Noble in your town to be able to make decisions on what they purchase versus having it come from corporate headquarters. Hmm. So they're trying to localize the book buying experience. Now, when I first read this, I thought, well, this, is, this guy's really smart. He clearly wants to save Barnes & Noble. I mean, their annual revenue uh, has dropped almost in half. I'm looking at the stats from, 20, from uh, 2011 to 2019. They've lost um, about $4 billion in annual revenue. So, wow. you know, it, it's, in, it's in trouble, right? But what I was thinking about was like, well, this sounds noble and this sounds great. But if I want to have a local book buying experience... I'm going to my local independent bookstore. Like I don't like, cause books are books, right? Like if, if you want to purchase, you know, the coast to coast murders and you want the hard, the hardback, like it doesn't matter where, what brick and mortar you walk into. It's, it's the same exact same product. So why wouldn't I patronize my local independent bookstore if that's what they're doing anyways? Like, I don't know. Like, do you have any thoughts on that? Like, it seems, it seems like an odd play for Barnes and Noble to kind of go local when like we want indie bookstores to be our local well, options. Here's the thing. He's coming from, um, I, I think he worked, he owns a hedge fund or he runs a hedge fund like that. That's who actually bought Barnes and Noble. And it's, it's the same fund that turned around Waterston's in the UK. Um, so he's not approaching this as a bookseller. He's approaching this as a, you know, just a business model. Like what, what's wrong with this business model and, and what's not. So he's probably looking at little indie stores going, well, they're somehow surviving through all of this. You know, how, how are they actually able to survive? So then he starts keying in on the couple of things that you just mentioned, you know, the personalized touch, the fact that, you know, they, they do have a local flavor. These are all things that Barnes and Noble doesn't have that they do. And it's allowing them to live in this, this market where Barnes and Noble is actually failing. So I think he's looking at that, trying to figure out, okay, well, how do we take those pieces and, and you know, scale them up um, to our particular business model? Now, where that brings into questions in my mind is like, I know how Barnes & Noble actually works. And, you know, when you walk through the door at Barnes & Noble, every shelf, every table, every every space in that store is bought and paid for right. by the publishers. Yeah, you, you know, if you want to be in that opening nook where, you know, at the front doors, that that's very expensive, that um, new release table that you run into as soon as you walk through the door, that's very expensive. And then it gets cheaper as you work further back into the store, but the publishers pay to put their books on those tables. And that's a significant portion of Barnes & Noble's revenue. Um, and that's obviously coming from the big guys, you know, that that's putting the James Patterson novels there, or, you know, luckily for me, some of my books, and, <laughs> you know, but, but it's, it's those same big names over and over again that they're, you know, they're forcing down the reader's throat in a lot of ways, you know, the second you walk through that door. So they would have to be willing to give up on all that in order to, to do what he's, he's thinking. Um, that being said, I mean, he, he did flip around Watterson. So it's, it's, it's a difficult you know, thing to, you know, I, I don't know where it's going to go. I, I would 
love to see them be able to rescue it. Um, I would love for our local Barnes and Noble to have a local, you know, flavor. I mean, right now they've got you know one little shelf for local authors, and I think most Barnes and Nobles, you know, they're, they're allowed to have that. You know, like that's something corporate gives them. Like, <laughs> you know, you can you can use this little four foot square you know space for whatever you want to do, but the rest is us. Um, like that kind of thing. Um, I, I do know the local managers would love to, to have that flexibility. And a lot of those local managers, they come from those independent bookstores. That's where they started off and they see Barnes and Noble as the next step on their, their career. Um, you know, so they, they head in there. So they've got that experience. So it's, it's an interesting thing. I, I could see it working and I could also see it failing miserably. Um, we'll have to yeah. wait and see. I mean, they had an interesting quote from a manager of, uh, of an Idaho Falls Barnes and Noble, uh, John Radford, I think. And he said, um, he's struggling to adjust to this new playbook. And he said, part of the problem is having a teenager trying to shelve American history. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think what he's alluding to is the fact that like, if you're going to pay people minimum wage to work in a Barnes and Noble, they're, they might not be invested in, in the product and, and recommendations. And, uh, and uh, like, again, like I'm thinking about it from a reader's perspective. Like if I want to get personalized recommendation, I'm going to talk to Tom at river run. Like I'm not going to go into the Barnes and Noble. So like, Putting those two on, on equal playing from a reader perspective, if the product is the same and the price is even comparable, I'm, I'm favoring that indie than I, instead of the chain. But maybe that's me. Maybe other people would rather go to the, to the chain for some reason. Well, they would have to bring in employees that are willing to make a career out of it, you know, like somebody right. like, like Tom. I mean, like if I walk into River Run or, you know, there's certain bookstores I can walk into, they know me well enough where they, they'll say, hey, J.D., this is a book you want to check out. Yeah. Like, and, and it's not just me. I mean, they know every single person that walks through that door exactly. at, at that level. Um, when you walk into a Barnes & Noble, to me, it's no different than walking into a Home Depot or walking into a Walmart. There's people there that will help you, um, but they don't know you. No, you better um, know what you want if you're going into a big box. Yeah, yeah. And and what he's talking about doing is obviously a complete shift in, in that. And, you know, that's expensive as well, because now you're going to have to pay these people more in order to be able to, to hold on to them. So we'll we'll see. Yeah, should be, should be interesting. Hey, I want to give a shout out to mate, uh, new patron, Juliet Fisher. Thank you, Juliet. Really appreciate you uh, supporting the Writers Inc. podcast. And if you're interested, go to patreon.com slash Writers Inc. podcast to become a patron. We also want to give a nice shout out to Kobo Writing Life, uh, the sponsor of the podcast. Kobo uh, allows you to take the self-publishing career into your own hands. You have complete control of your catalog, no exclusivity, and wonderful promotional opportunities right from their dashboard. And you can get started with that at KoboWritingLife.com. All right. Who do we have on today? Today, we have an interesting character. I love this guy. Eddie Generous from Unnerving Magazine. Huh. Okay. Is that his real name? I believe that is his real name. <laughs> I, I think it kind of has to be, right? Because if you're going to choose a pen name, I don't know that that's where you would go. Right. Like it's, it's, it's just odd enough where it, it makes sense that that's his real name, which is a very cool name. It is. And he and he's his his, his thing is really, uh, uh, is ca- he calls it quiet horror, but speculative fiction. So you're right. A, a, ch- a pen name it probably wouldn't have picked that for, for branding purposes. But uh, he's a great guy. He runs, uh, he runs the magazine all by himself. Uh, he's got a podcast. And uh, really looking forward to talking to him because he's one of those uh, those solopreneurs, those, those individual publishers who makes all, all those decisions. And it's going to be fascinating to hear how he deals with submissions and, uh, and running his publication as a single guy. Cool. Well, here he is, Eddie Generous. All right, man. I'd like to know first off what your uh, writing space looks like. Ah. Uh. It's, it's mostly just like a, a cluttered desk. And then uh, <laughs> I have a wall, bookshelf wall in front of me where uh, the pocket paperbacks go because I have uh, regular bookshelves in the living room that have like, you know, nice hard covers and stuff. And pocket paperbacks kind of screw up the vibe. <laughs> so I got, so I have that. It's, it's, it's very messy because uh, I spend, a, you know, a lot of time in here. And then I have pictures, uh, some horror pictures and stuff up on the wall, some, uh, you know, like Stephen King prints and, and stuff like that. So it's, I don't know. It's, it's, it's pretty much me like, uh, <laughs> busy and, and messy and, uh, you know, horror flavored. Nice. Yeah. I find it, uh, writer space is just endlessly fascinating. Just, uh, uh are, do you do most of your writing in that room? Do, do you go to coffee shops or like the dining room table or anything like that? I do all of it here. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I, uh, I sometimes, um, if I have a, from the publishing side of publishing other people's books, if I have, um, 
if I have a proofread that has to get done immediately, I'll put it on the Kindle. And uh, I have a second desk here that's for like other other types of art. Um, where I'll sit at that desk. That way, I'm away from the internet because. <laughs> By the time you're you're proofreading somebody else's book, you're not changing much. You're just catching typos, and you've read it three or four times already. So it's like, ah, it's hard so to it's stay easy. focused, isn't it? Yeah, way easy to get distracted. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you have any type of writing routine or, or time of day that, that you're uh, you prefer? I used to. I used to uh, be very diligent that it was. I got up. First thing I did was write, um, but then I kind of, I don't know. I had like a, a, a few years of, of where it was like, I was, I didn't know it at the time. I was like a frustrated writer, like anybody else, but it was like the practice years, <laughs> uh, where it was like, I had to get those words down to get like, cause you have to get all the bad words out before you get writing any good ones. So it was, it was kind of like that, but now it's uh it's kind of whenever the the mood strikes me like sometimes i'll be ready to go to bed and i'll i'll just get an idea so i'll I'll add it to whatever project i'm working on or or whatever so yeah how many words did it take you to how many bad words did you have to get out approximately any idea (sighs) yeah i i've i've kept track over the years um before i sold any any short stories for a decent amount of like Anything more than like uh, the piddly zero dollars or uh, <laughs> exposure? You know, $5. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where you where you kind of you kind of need those though, like to not talk bad too bad about them because you need that little little baby steps to keep you going. But uh, I would guess it was probably around uh, a million and a half words yeah. before I did uh, anything where I was like, holy that that actually that publications had some good people in it, and then it was. Uh, over 2 million by the time I finally sold a novel anywhere. Wow. That so is I persistence, kinda, man. I sucked a bit longer than most people. <laughs> uh, but I also, I didn't, I didn't start writing when I was a kid. Um, I wasn't like the, you know, in like every uh, coming of age novel about boys, there's the scribe kid who's always like the reader's voice or the writer's voice. And it's like, I was never that guy. So, uh, <laughs> so I, I got into it pretty late and uh, pushed as hard as I could for several years. Yeah. I, I'm excited to talk to you because you, uh, you're multi-hyphenated. You know, you're, you're a writer, you're a publisher, uh, you're a podcaster. Uh, but I think what runs through all that is you have quite a love of horror. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty much like what I love. <laughs> <laughs> That's everything. <laughs> yeah. 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 I know, uh, you know, right now you said as a publisher, you're kind of less interested in quiet horror. Uh, I was wondering if you could elaborate on that a little bit. Uh, well, it took a few years for me to understand what I wanted to publish. And, uh, when I first started unnerving, uh, it started as a magazine and, um, I didn't, I didn't know this scene as well as I should have uh, when I first started. I was just submitting everywhere, and I had hundreds of uh, rejections and dozens of acceptances. Um, but it was like I didn't know fully the ins and outs. And then once I got focusing harder on the other magazines, it was like every single horror magazine that paid you know, a penny and above, it seemed, was... Uh, was quiet horror um or and every single story in uh you know the year's best anthologies they're quiet horror it's like um we've gotten rid of somehow the the whole horror indie genre has gotten rid of like accessible fun horror so i've leaned away from that to try and hopefully um revive some of my favorite things in horror uh such as like well, um, like, okay, so say, uh, say you compared, like, it's easy with Stephen King. Everybody's read, like, all of it, pretty much, right? So, so say you compared um, Last Rung on the Ladder to Lawnmower Man. I like Lawnmower Man more. 
Uh, and almost every time I'll take lawn, the lawnmower man type story over the, the somber, whatever story. It's like, um, I don't know. I, I like, as far as short stories go, I like in horror, I like to have a lot more fun. Uh, there's lots of dark literary stuff that it's like, that's great. Uh, I really enjoy it. But when it comes to straight horror, I like, I like fun. I like yeah. to have fun in it. It's, it's, I guess, simple as that. Uh, it's taken a long time for me to understand exactly that point. Yeah. Uh, so let's, let's talk about unnerving magazine for a bit then. Uh, you are, you're publishing great horror um, by other people. Uh, what's the, what's the outlook for selling short stories in this day and age? It, it, it seems like from your position it looks pretty good. Uh, it sucks. Um, <laughs> it, it is tough. It's very tough. Uh, for some reason, um, people, uh, people don't, you know, people aren't reading as much as they used to. Obviously it's like, uh, I read, uh, I've talked about this lots of times before. So anybody who listens to me other places, uh, will have heard this, but I read a, uh, a forward in a Ray Bradbury, uh, collection where he was talking about how he was making five cents a word in the fifties wow. uh, as a pro rate. Uh, some places still consider five cents a word a pro rate. Uh, I, I can't, unnerving uh, doesn't pay five cents a word uh, <laughs> to the regular person. Like there's people that I've sought out and paid them more than five cents a word for their stories. But it's just like outlook is not good. If you were to ask the ma magic eight ball, I, I would say. Um, however, uh, I think unnerving, what I'm trying to do with unnerving is switch up a little bit from what everybody else is doing. Uh, sometimes you get a magazine and uh, it's got 20 stories in it. So you're looking at like 35, 40,000 words. And it's just like, that's too much. I want to tick things off my to-do list. Uh, so let's have a magazine where it's, you know, 15,000 words of, or 12,000 words of fiction. And then, you know, a few thousand words of nonfiction. And then that's something done. Uh, you've had your, your fun, you can get back to the novel that, you know, whatever novel you just spent $35 on <laughs> at the store, you get back to reading that thing. Uh, so I'm kind of, kind of leaning uh, towards, um, happier, you know, a quicker, quicker roads to, to enjoyment than um, a lot of places. Uh, maybe I could be overthinking it though too. So who knows? Yeah. The it's funny cause you know, magazines were the original subscription model and, and now we're like in the subscription model, you know, Netflix binging age. Uh, so how does, how does that affect or not affect your business? Um, I don't know. Uh, I, I kind of, when it comes to subscriptions, it, it affects my business in that I'm not um, a very good capitalist in that um, the idea of business models is that you get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger forever. Uh, it's like you're never happy with whatever you're making. Whereas I'm kind of like, oh, hey, I've if I have lots of subscribers at a time, I'll, uh, I'll be like, oh, hey, I can pay the authors more or... Uh, I don't have to go around pestering all the other little publishers to put ads in the magazine. Um, whereas if uh, sometimes there just uh, are weird lulls where subscribers kind of run out because it's, you know, based on four issues, which is about a year uh, subscriptions. And so say they don't renew, uh, say I have a batch of those, then I have to go out uh, and pester more people for advertising. And then I, I turn around to make sure that the advertisers are getting their dollars worth because, you know, if there's nobody reading it, what's the point of advertising? Uh, you know, I, I really push to get the subscriptions up and then, um, you know, Amazon sales and, and, and Kindle Unlimited and all that stuff. Yeah. So how are you, how, how are you uh, trying to get potential subscribers to even check out Unnerving in the first place? Um. Well, I, I pull in a ton of people. You get a ton of uh, attention just by having open submissions um, because there's, uh, you know, any given month I get from 
250 to 500 different people sending me stories. Um, and it granted most of them don't subscribe. Most of them don't read the magazine. And you can really tell that by the kind of stories they send me. It's like, you have no clue. You're just sending me what you have and hoping I like it, which uh, whatever, it's fine. I'll just turn it down. It's no big deal. Um, so that drives in a whole, whole host of people. And then there's, there's the things I do, um, on the larger scale publishing side that have, have caught me some flack from the general public, but in the long run, it seemed like the right thing to do. And it has turned out to be that I'm getting a lot of goodwill from, uh, just fans of writing as opposed of horror writing, as opposed to writers who want in a magazine. So, yeah, that's, uh, I mean, that's, that's the big challenge we all face, right? I mean, getting eyeballs on it. Um, what's, I, I'm just kind of dumbfounded. I didn't realize like magazines got that many subscri- uh, submissions. Like how do you process two to 500 short stories a month? Uh, well, it's, it takes longer than a month sometimes to get through them. Um, however, uh, you get, when I first started, it would take a hell of a lot longer than it does now. But um, I can tell the, f- the first strike is the quality of writing. I can tell the quality of writing in the first sentence. Uh, if you reuse a word three or four times in the first sentence that's not purposeful, uh, it's like, I don't have to read on. Uh-huh. I know this story's bad from here. Um, also, uh, there's little things that I've talked to death about uh, starting a story with, and it's like, if you start with, it was a dark and stormy night, I'm good. Uh, I don't need to read on. I've read this story. Uh, everybody res- has read this story. Um, it's just, there's little things that that pretty much half the um, submissions go out the window in the first sentence uh, or the first couple sentences. And it's just like, uh, it's not just quality. Uh, there's other content things like, if it opens on a rape scene and stuff like that, I'm just like, no, thank you. Uh, that's a different type of publication. Uh, so there's, there are things. Um, and then after that, uh, it gets the toughest parts are the ones that actually make it all the way to the end, uh, which is probably like 10 or 15%. And then I've got to whittle that down to 2% that I want. And if I've made it all the way to the end of a story, I'm interested because I, I'm, I'm significantly harder on submissions than I am. If I pick up an anthology, if I pick up an anthology, I'll be like, Hey, that was pretty cool. You know, if a story's okay, but if I were reading that in submissions, I would never get to the end of it. I would just be like, no, that's not, there's so much competition that I don't have to read this. Yeah. And it's not always that they're bad. It's that it is that there's so much competition. Yeah. That, uh, that kind of does feel like the double-edged sword of where we are in publishing right now. Anyone can publish and at the same time, anyone can publish. And so uh, do you have any help over that? Or is it just all, is it completely you going through the submissions? Oh, it's just me. Everything is me. Uh, I've, I've had uh, on small projects, I've partnered up before and it didn't work well. I don't work well with people. So uh, <laughs> I, I have to, I kind of have to keep it. I'm fine. If, if, if I'm the writer's side and I send edits places, unless they're crazy people. I had one time with a, a very small publisher that was new and they didn't know what they were doing. And I was like, like alarmed, alarmed, alarm. And then I got out of the contract, but it was like, uh, usually I'm, I'm, I'm like, Hey, good point. Uh, you can, uh, you know, you edit my work. That's great. Uh, that's a good call. That's not a good call. Uh, however, with, running unnerving it's like no I, this this needs to be done by this arbitrary timeline i just came up with uh this has to look this way uh these stories have to represent what i'm thinking should be in this then and maybe i didn't convey that very well uh it's just it's just better off if i do it all alone however um i guess in the future if if it does continue to grow uh there probably would be some slush readers um just to, you know, then I don't have to read all the first sentences of everything. I can just read, you know, the ones that make it past the first sentence. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, are, are there, uh, what, what gets you from the first sentence to the end? Just generally speaking, are there certain, um, elements of the story or the writing or the voice that are, are keeping you turning pages? Um, yeah. Uh, first off, I have to want to, um, I have to want to know what's happening next. It's like, um, if, if you can open your page, the first sentence with something that uh, is impossible for me not to go what's in the next sentence and what's in the next sentence, uh, that first page is super important. Um, so if, if, as long as it's doing that, then I keep going. Uh, if I get through an amazing first page and this next page is like backstory or something, I let, I'm, I'm okay with that because I'm hooked. As long as I'm hooked in the beginning, um, and then as it goes on later, uh, I really I, I suspense is the key for me uh, with unnerving. Um, if it's like um, I used to do critiques, and I would get these stories where when you're doing a critique, uh, people have paid you to tell them what you think of their story, so you have to read it all the way through. Um, so I get these stories for critiques. And it was like, obviously what the people have done is they looked at where they sell stories and they're like, Hey, nightmare magazines, the top. So I'll send it there first. Oh, black static, uh, lamplight, wherever and down to unnerving. Um, cause at the time I was, I was paying a penny. So it was like less than everybody else. I think it's still less than all those guys. Uh, but, uh, the story read like those types of stories and it would be like, I would get to the end of the critique. And I'd be like, I remember one was, uh, this woman was sitting across the kitchen table from her dead husband. Uh, he was sitting up and they were like, it was very sad and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, no, see the kind of story I want to publish is if they're sitting across the table and the husband starts banging the table and then starts chasing around the house. <laughs> uh, like it's great that that's sad and all that stuff, but, I would rather get heart rates going than have people being teary eyed. Uh, there's, and it's not that I dislike teary eyed stories. It's just, there's so many other places to send that story to, uh, give me, you know, a big monster chasing you. So that, that helps in getting me all the way through. Um, and then that definitely helps at the end. There's also other things. Uh, I'm much more, I lean towards literary a little bit, uh, with flash stories because it's harder to build a suspense, whereas it's easier to have an impact with, uh, kind of like beautiful wordplay and the, the song, the general somber things. Like if, if you kill a child or something in a story, you're automatically, that's like an automatic punch. <laughs> uh, whereas if it's, if it's in a flash story, it's like, you can handle that punch. But if you read the short story version of like, say there was uh, somebody who was like, okay, I'm going to make pet cemetery into a short story. You might be like, ah, I don't know. That's a, that's a bit much for 4,000 words. If it were 1000 words, it's like, Oh, I can, I can handle this awfulness for 1000 words. Uh, it's kind of same with uh, when it, the subject of rape comes up is, is like, let's leave that to flash fiction. Cause uh, we don't want to go through all the details. Um, Cause you can kind of, you can put yourself in that situation and, uh, you know, you don't need to go through everything. So that's, those are the two kind of things that help me get through stuff. Um, but uh, I'm like anybody, I guess, uh, lots of white space too, hmm. um, helps me, uh, uh, because quite often literary fiction is like bricks of, of prose. It's like, you know, it might be two pages without a, a return in there anywhere. It's just like, that's, that's just too dense for what I like to publish. Um, so fast, snappy things uh, interest me. Excellent. That's, uh, it, it seems like you know exactly what you want, and that's, uh, th that would be great if, if people are submitting. Uh, talk to me about the Unnerving Podcast. How did that start, and, uh, and how does that tie into the magazine? That started because... Um, it was like, uh, I saw, you know, enough people were podcasting and I was like, Oh, well that's, 
that's probably another avenue that doesn't take a whole lot. Like as far as the things that cost money and time, uh, the podcast is the least of all of them. Uh, you, you know, you pay your, your fee for your podcast and you buy a, a half decent microphone and then all you got to do is, uh, you know, read some people's books and then set up a conversation with them. So that, that part just, it kind of came around naturally. I had no idea the, the benefit of it. Um, it's hugely beneficial, not just as a writer, but as a publisher and as a human being, cause I don't get out much. Uh, <laughs> I don't, I don't have like coworkers. Uh, I see sometimes I go to the gym at like between sometime between 12 AM and 3 AM, uh, every day. So sometimes I see somebody there, but not usually. <laughs> so it's like, I don't have coworkers. I don't have you know, gym people. Um, so I get talking to these other people who have the exact same interests I do or close to it. Uh, and, and you, you get to meet really cool people. And, uh, and a lot of them have been, you know, beaten up by the industry. So they have stuff to tell. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of the really great stuff, uh, happens after the recording's done. Uh, you establish a rapport with somebody and they're like, you know what, uh, <laughs> you were talking up this company, but I've worked with them before and you know, they're terrible. Uh, so there's companies that, um, you learn about different publishers and editors and, and stuff like that. So hopefully not too many people are talking, uh, poorly about me and, you know, after hours on different podcasts, but Hey, maybe it happens. I don't know. I, I got to go back for just a second I I have to know what you're doing at the gym between 12 and 3 a.m. How does that go? How does that come into your daily schedule? Uh, well, um, I know. Well, when I started unnerving, uh, I immediately started packing on weight uh, because it was like the time that I could be doing other stuff or sometimes I would get like part time jobs and, and things like that. Uh, nothing. I would. It was always temporary jobs. But uh, the. I found that once I started unnerving, it was just like I was I was in the chair for like 14 hours a day uh, between my writing and unnerving. And then, you know, I have a different chair that I sit in to read in, but it's still just butt in the chair. Right. Um, and then there's, you know, butt on the couch and there's in bed. So it was like, uh, I have to I have to do stuff. So I, I don't like people that much like strangers, like I don't like being around them all, all that much. And I, the gym's just empty. So I go, uh, I, it's, it's either that I get there between one and or 12 and 3am. Uh, I usually stay for like 45 minutes to an hour. I'm just doing, you know, whatever, uh, one of the machines, usually I don't do much by weights. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just really, it's really nice. You have a whole gym to yourself. It's like you're a rich person. Uh, <laughs> Like you see like Mark Wahlberg's gym in his, in his house and he's got all these machines and he can just do whatever he wants. Like I can pretty much do that, uh, at that time of day because nobody's there. Um, however, there's cameras and it would be pretty weird if they, you know, if I started being like a weirdo at the gym, uh, but mostly I just, you know, go in the step climber, the elliptical or, or the treadmill. You're not like running through with your shorts around your ankles or anything like that. No, no, no. Uh, it sets my mind at ease a little bit too because uh i just there's something about rules that are easy to follow that people just ignore and it makes me so mad uh like outdoor shoes in the gym it's just like no uh let's not do that it's against the rules uh and then wiping down the machines uh, <laughs> i've noticed everybody started to with the the coronavirus but it's like you should have been doing that before. Why weren't you doing that? Um, and then there's, you know, if anybody's being stinky at the gym, it's just me. Uh, there's not like, cause sometimes there would be some people coming in the middle of the night uh, and uh, they're new, obviously new to working out and they don't realize that at the end of the day, they've already kind of like sweat off all their deodorant. So when they go to the, the gym, they have a, a quite a scent uh, sometimes <laughs> some bigger folks. So, um, you know, the end of the empty gyms are great. That's all I, yeah. I guess to sum it up. <laughs> I can't argue with that. I, I, I'm usually at the gym by about 4 30 AM or five, but that's not even close to where you are. I, I, is your gym trip at the end of your day or the beginning of your day? End of the day. Ah, okay. I get up at, 
I get up usually around uh, 11 uh, or 12. Um, part of that is uh, it was it was earlier and I would go to bed earlier before. But uh, we ended up um, this cat started hanging around our house. We had two indoor cats already and this cat started hanging around and had a, a really big paw. And uh, the owners, we tracked down the owners and they're like, oh, we're just going to give them up because we don't want to pay for the amputation. And we're like, oh, you are terrible human beings. <laughs> so we paid for the amputation and had to make this outdoor cat an indoor cat. And he is loud uh, <laughs> in the middle of the night. So since my time doesn't really matter, like what time I'm doing anything, I kind of, you know, do a bit of babysitting uh, at times through the night to, to keep things as quiet as it can be uh, for, you know, cause my wife has the, the regular day job. <laughs> yeah. That's, that is a, that's a crazy schedule, man. I can't imagine. <laughs> I guess it's all what you get used to though. All right. Nice. Well, I got, uh, I'd like to kind of wrap up with, with one sort of big question. You can answer it however you want. Uh, given your experience and, and, uh, and work in the industry, where do you think we're headed in the next five to 10 years? Oh, that's tough. Um, like even just yesterday, I saw that uh, CBS uh, was talking about uh, Simon & Schuster is not a big deal. Um, and it's like, are we heading to a road where it's all Amazon? Like, is does that, like what does Simon & Schuster saying it's not a big deal mean to authors trying to sell to agents? Um, because if, you know, if there's already that, if there's that unshaky, shaky ground, um, where does it mean? And, and, and stuff like that. So it, it's very difficult to, um, say, I do think, um, more and more people are making a living, uh, when they do it correctly, there's a lot of people not doing uh, self-publishing correctly, but if they do it correctly, there's a lot of people making an actual living by cutting out um, kind of the the unnecessary, often unnecessary bricks and mortar portion uh, of the stores, um, but I I I have I have a hard time uh, seeing everything come down to Amazon the way it does um, because they've kind of cornered um, created like the the print on demand situation uh, and up here in Canada those books don't hit stores. Uh, they don't have that same deal here. So you can't, you can't go on book tours. You can't do this or that with, uh, our, our version of Barnes and Noble, which is chapters. So you can't do that with chapters because they don't have any books, uh, that sell. So it's, it's, it's hard to say. I don't think, um, you'll ever fully replace some stuff because like, you know, imagine like Tom Hanks self-publishing a book. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like so you'll always have big money coming in because people like tom hanks go to the regular publisher um and then stephen king and stuff like that 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 they sell enough books that they can publish uh you know some failures or mediocre sales or anything like that which keeps the industry going however if if they could sort of adopt an idea that um kind of like what i've i've done uh is like you make enough money and that's okay. Not that you have to keep growing for the investors. Um, so I don't know the, the big publishers constant, constant growth in an industry that has fewer and fewer people reading. Uh, I can't see how that's sustainable. Like I granted there are more people. Um, but you know, a lot of, a lot of old people who do like to read probably like as a higher, ratio than many other age range they they tend to die on you uh <laughs> so you lose those readers so it's it's i don't know man to answer your question is kind of uh, impossible i'll just talk circles uh because i really i have no clue in five five years um hopefully there's more horror out there that's one thing i i think there's some um press is doing more stuff however it's all seems to be quiet horror so i don't know uh, well, we'll see. 
All right, Mr. Generous from the Unnerving Magazine. Uh, clearly, this re- this was recorded at the beginning of the pandemic uh, early <laughs> on as, as Simon & Schuster was being referenced. That was when the rumors that they were on the block were, were starting to crop up, and that's uh, we already know how that's played out. So, uh, but yeah, great talk. What'd you think? I, I'm always amazed that, you know, like, magazines to me are very much like the independent bookstores. The fact that they're still able to, to claw their way out there and, and survive is, is fascinating to me. Um, that world has changed so much. Um, you know, he had mentioned um, selling short stories and, and how it sucks, you know, like, like it, from a financial standpoint anyway. Um, I, I personally stopped doing that back in the 90s. And it's funny because a bunch of mine are listed on my Wikipedia page. And I don't think any of those magazines even exist anymore. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, the, the last short story I wrote, and this will really put it in perspective, it was for Playboy. Um, that was like my first big article um, that I, I had written. It was a fiction piece. Um, and they were paying $2 a word, um, which was, you know, even to today's world, I mean, that, that's pretty strong. Um, I wrote the story, and I had it on a, a laptop, and I went out to work, and I came back, and somebody had broken into my apartment. And they took the laptop, and they took, I had like a glass skull that I had gotten at, um, I can't remember what store it was, but it was like sitting on my shelf. And they took that, like the only two things. And this is at, a, you know, back in the 90s when there was no cloud to back up to. So like yeah. I had one of those little raid drives on my desk where you have to push a button to actually back up. Um, so the story vanished. Um their short stories are, are, are a weird thing. Like I, I think for any writer, it's, it's something you should definitely try because uh, if you, it, they're very difficult to write. I mean, for they me, are. it's more, it's harder to write a short story than it is to write a novel. Um, but I, it teaches you the the basics. It teaches you how to create a beginning, a middle, and an end. Uh, and you're forced to put it in that you know a short format. You know that that makes you even stronger as a writer. Um, to be able to do that, um, selling them now, um, like he had mentioned, like pro rates. What, what did he see? Five cents a word or, or yeah, something? And, crazy. And th- which is what they were going for like thirty years ago. <laughs> yeah, that that's that's backstepped, you know, completely. I mean, like the Playboy thing, like that's you know, national magazines will still pay in that level. I mean, I've I've gotten you know like four dollars a word from from other national magazines, so they they do still pay, but it's only you know you can count them on one hand, you know how many actually do that. Um, so I, I've personally stopped writing them. The only benefit that I've really seen, um, other than being, you know, cause you can get your name out in a lot of different places, but I don't know how many people are actually reading those different places. Um, from the, f- the film and TV side, uh, I, I think you, you can get a lot of options by doing that, you know, because yes. you can, you can put out so many stories, you can get five, 10, 15 things optioned, you know, for various anthology shows like creep show and things like that nowadays in the horror world. Um, that, that's strong. Um, and if you think of, you know, if you go back through and we've got to mention Stephen King is we're required by law. Um, <laughs> if you go back through, you know, a lot of his movies, they were based on short stories. You right. know, so he cranked out you know, a couple thousand words and, and bang, he got a movie out of it. And a lot of times those those films and TV shows are very different from the actual short story. Um, but he's creating that intellectual property. He's creating that spark. Um, which for a very small amount of his time versus creating a novel. So from a business standpoint, you know, on that level, I think it's smart. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I haven't talked about this yet, and and I think maybe on uh, one of the episodes later this month or early next month, uh, I'll talk more about it. I'm going to do a short story experiment in 2021 because I feel like for just the reasons you've mentioned, I want to. I really want to fine tune my storytelling chops. And I started writing short stories 20 years ago, and I kind of want to come back to that. But I also feel like you're right. There's a time right now where all of these streaming platforms are looking for good content. And I think what's attractive about the short story, and this is completely anecdotal, I don't have any evidence for this, but I kind of feel like it gives a creative, a movie maker, a television producer, it gives them a core story, but also gives them a lot of freedom to mm-hmm. to extrapolate or to change or to modify it. Whereas with a novel uh, or a full length, you know, long form storytelling, I feel like their their hands are more tied when it comes to some creative decisions they can make. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try some things. I'll talk more about it later, but uh, I, I think I'm going to write a bunch of st- short stories in 2021 and kind of do some crazy things with them. Yeah, that's definitely a big part of it because I'm, you know, going through that right now. I've got a, a couple books that have been optioned for film, uh, and you know, it's all about you know them trying to translate it into a script, and you know, they're they're cutting out this and cutting out that, uh, but for the most part, they try to stick to the the framework of the novel. But you know, like you mentioned, if it's a short story, it's just giving them that spark of an idea, um, but then they're allowed to run with it. You know, and, and from the the writing room standpoint, I think they really gravitate towards that. So you may be onto something. We'll see. Yeah, we'll hey, see. An- another thing I thought was interesting I wanted to ask you about was uh, as a writer, Eddie talked about, um, quote unquote, getting bad words out. And, and it said, I think he said it took him almost two million words before he was starting to sell things. And, and I know we have people listening who are at various stages of their author journey. And hearing something like that can be 
really disappointing because I think, you know, we all fall in love with our first novel or our first story. Um, and But then I think we look back and realize that, well, we kind of had to go through that. So what, what are your thoughts on like getting the bad words out? Is that something you had to do? I think it's something everybody has to do. Two, two million is a lot. Yeah, <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot of bad words on the, the cutting room floor. Um, usually when I teach a class, I'll, I'll tell everybody it's roughly about a half million words. Uh, but you're going to know that when, when you hit that um, because you, you, you know, you're sitting, your writing basically follows in the early parts of your, your writing career. I think we all kind of emulate the people that we read. Um, so our, our writing tends to, you know, we try to sound like whoever it is we're, we're typically reading. Um, but at some point, and usually for, you know, people that I talk to about the half million word mark, you know, something clicks and your own voice starts to shine through and it's no longer about that. Uh, and a simple test for that is if you pick up a book and read for a little bit before you actually start to write, if you're able to put that book down and then continue to write in a voice that's actually your own and not in the voice of the book you were just reading, then you're probably there. Um, and, and there's a lot of, you know, obviously there's also the, the grammar and, and you know, punctuation, all those fun things that you have to pick up along the way if, if you don't know that. But it, it's the voice that, that really, you know, shines through after a certain amount of time. Like prior to that, I think anybody can start their writing career and know every single grammar rule. Um, but there's no shortcut to, to finding that voice. You have to work at it. I have 400,000 words sitting on a hard drive that I'll probably never touch. <laughs> so yeah. it's... I've got right a couple books sitting there too that you know they're never going to see the light of day, or at least you know my daughter might find them after I die and you know put put them out. But from my standpoint, I'm never going to unlock that that folder on my drive. It's going to just they're going to sit there and rot. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was also uh, really uh, ma making the connection to uh, you know the work that we did on on the short story that we give away on on uh, writersingpodcast.com uh, about the importance of, of that first sentence in the first paragraph and how much that matters. And Eddie kind of emphasized that too. Yeah, that's huge. And one of the things that I find a lot when I'm, I'm doing book doctor work or just talking to mentoring clients, a lot of times I can go into a book and chop out the first page or the first couple of pages or the first chapter, like where they think the book should start is never where it really should start. Um, usually it's not that far in there. Um, but, you know, you have to find that sweet spot. And a lot of people do start with their version of, you know, it's a dark and stormy whatever. You know, they, they you see those same beginnings over and over again. Um, I've been in pitch sessions before with agents where, you know, agents have to raise their hand. Basically, somebody reads a story and agents raise their hand at the point where they would put it down. Oh, um, and it's, it's very telling to watch those those hands drop at, at certain points. And, you know, for, you know, opening with dialogue, I think, is huge. Um, you know, you, it, it's a, you always need to open with something that the reader has never seen before. And like he said, you've got, you know, you've got to grab their attention and they've got to want to flip that next page, go on to that next sentence. And when you're reading the kind of levels that, that he is, you know, 300 short stories in a month or an agent that's reading, you know, 300 novels in a, in a week or, you know, combing through the first couple sentences anyway, they're putting those down. They're, they're looking for reasons to put it down more than they're looking for reasons to keep it. Yes. Um, so you, you need to, you need to create something unique. Yeah, for sure. Anything else in, in the discussion you found interesting? He had me cracking up when he was talking about going to the gym at three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know about you, but I, I used to do that too. Like when, back when I worked for RCA, you know, it was complete nightlife. You know, like we, I didn't start my, my work day until like maybe six o'clock at night. You know, like we, we were in the recording studio till two or three o'clock in the morning. Um, you know, then I'd head home and that's when I would hit the grocery store. I would hit the gym and it's a very different world out there. You know, I was in Fort Lauderdale. So going to the grocery store at three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning, you see some very different characters than you probably <laughs> do during the daytime um it's it's amazing it always amazed me that you know like those worlds exist in the exact same place yeah yeah I, I have not had those kind of personal experiences i've gotten them on the other side where i've been out doing things at like 4 a.m or 5 a.m and it's a different creature that's out at that time but it's also yeah. not the same creature who's out at noon either so <laughs> yeah it's some strangeness out there so it's, it's a crazy world yeah but I, I can definitely see the appeal of hitting the gym when nobody else is there yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, great talk with Eddie. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Thought he was a, a really interesting guy. And, and check out Unnerving Magazine. It's, it's fantastic. I subscribe to it. Uh, I really like the editorial choices he makes. And, and the stories are a different kind of horror in, in a good way. Great. Um, so next week, we've got an attorney on, right? We do. Yeah, we have Jonathan Kirsch is coming on. He is an attorney out of L.A., I believe it is. And uh, just a great conversation. Um, you know, it, it's something we all need to be thinking about. I know Joanna talks a lot about 
the importance of IP and protecting it. And Orner Ross is, is a, a big name there who, who is also, uh, you know, talks about that kind of stuff. So it'll be great to have Jonathan on and, and talk about what are the things we should be thinking about from a legal perspective, because chances are most of us are not lawyers, we're writers. Yeah, and, and most writers don't share their publishing contract with the lawyer before they, they sign on that dotted line. They're just they're just glad to have a contract in front of them. Exactly. Um, and you know, if you talk to you know anybody that succeeded in this world, they've got a horror story out there about something that went wrong with a contract, and and a lot of times it's because they either didn't understand the fine print, um, or they just felt that was the best they were going to do, so they just went ahead and signed it, or they were afraid to push back because they didn't want to see somebody walk away, um, for whatever reason. But you, you can't be afraid of those things. It's the it's your life that. That's, that's basically hanging out there and you know this isn't you know 40 years ago where books went out of print and then you eventually got your rights back ebooks don't go out of print you know so you've got to you got to really watch that language because you could literally be signing it away forever yeah till, yeah, till the end of the universe as most of the contracts actually say <laughs> really at the end of the universe wow till, till the end of the universe from now till the end of time and the end of the universe <laughs> Well, so you guys got to make sure you tune in next week for that. So you don't want to, you don't want to get, you don't want to get stuck at the wrong end of the end of the universe. <laughs> nope. <laughs> All right. Well, to our listeners, make sure you go to writersingpodcast.com and grab the free revision masterclass where you can see the storytelling process from beginning to end. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.